All right, welcome back for another edition of The Final Mile from Freight 360, where we answer your questions. Please make sure to check out all the sponsors down in the description box or the episode notes to support the channel. And if you'd like to learn more about Freight 360 and our training options, make sure to check out the Freight Broker Basics course, where Ben and I walk you through a self-paced, full-length course on everything from how to start a brokerage, find new customers, grow that book of business, and even hire the right employees when you get to that point. So we got five great questions from you guys today. And um, our first one comes from Paula, who asked, how do I find the correct specs for a John Deere tractor? So the um, there was a this came from our Facebook group, and there was a picture with it, too. Basically, she had a picture of a, a tractor that her customer wanted her to ship, and she didn't have the specs for it. And she came to the Facebook community to try and ask this question. Um, so whenever you're dealing with heavy haul or anything that's out of the ordinary, I would highly recommend you only get the specs from your customer for a variety of reasons. Um, Cause you might be able to find some manufacturer data online that will show the, the width and the height and the weight and all that stuff. Um, but if for some reason you get it wrong and you send the wrong equipment type in there and your customer is like, well, this doesn't fit then that's on you. So I would always verify everything right from your customer and have that information on the load tender or the BOL or whatever it is as well as some sort of uh, backup. Um, any other thoughts on this one, Ben? I mean, you hit the big one. The big one is cover your ass, CYA, right? And you always want that in writing and from your customer. The only thing I would say is I would probably very quickly take a look at the bill of lading, try to find, obviously you should be able to find the number or the model number on the BOL that is accurate. I would probably throw it in real quick into BARD or Google to just see if I could find the specs. And again, no more than 30 seconds to a minute or two. If I even can find them, I am still going to do exactly what you outlined. I'm going to send an email right back to my customer and go, please confirm these are the dimensions. These are what I found for the this model number, because that shows that you maybe took the initiative. But most of the time, I'm going to ask them to confirm the dimensions always for that very reason, because you don't want to take the responsibility because, I mean, for one, they could have sent you a model number that's incorrect. But if you then go and run with your own dimensions and you send in a truck that can't, they're going to look for every way usually to put that on you. Yeah. So again, it's much easier to prevent an issue than to defend who was responsible later. So you always want to go back to the source. You always want them to put it in writing. And I would even go back and you could even add something else like, Hey, you know, I wanted you to confirm the dimensions to make sure we're legal. I found them, but I wanted to make sure we had the accurate ones from, you know, your side. Also, please confirm the load value. And if there are any other requirements that may be special for this, right? Now you're covering all of your bases. You make sure you got them to confirm in writing the value, the dimensions, and whether or not they want it tarped. Is this going to go on an RGN? Those are basically how, that's kind of how I would go about it. Yeah, no, you're. That's exactly right. I think the big takeaway is um, you've got to you got to have the dimensions correct because I have seen it happen in the past where somebody did not send. They sent in a flatbed when it really needed an RGN or a double drop or something that had a lower deck height, right? Because they needed the to have height. that clearance at the top, and that's. Yeah. It's bad news. Um, so yeah, to that point, right? I mean, if this is new for you, right? Like 
Rolling stock typically runs into height issues or width issues. Now, you will run into length if you're doing like very long things, but tractors, cars, I used to ship a lot of that for the military too, right? Like your differentiation is usually how are they going to load it and what is the legal height and is it going to be over with? So again, always want to go back to confirm this, sometimes multiple times just to make sure. Yep, exactly. Next question, Alexis asked, should I use business cards and flyers? If so, what do you have on them? What do you think on this one to market yourself, Ben? (sighs) Well, I think business cards, yes, definitely. I think collateral, what it's referred to like marketing material, it's really popular with realtors and other companies. I don't know. I I think it also kind of depends on what you're doing. I mean, to be honest, I don't really feel that they're looked at very often, but I think there's some value when you leave them because they probably stay on that person's desk for a while and they're continually looking at your company's name brand, which I think has some value. If you're going to be there anyway, it probably doesn't cost you that much to get them made and leaving something leaves a professional impression. So business cards, definitely. And I think, again, with Canva and some of these other, you can create a really professional flyer that you could have printed. And that's the other thing. How these feel and look is going to be directly proportional to how they perceive you. If you print these out on black and white and it's all fuzzy and it looks like you did this 10 minutes before you left, you're better off not taking it at all. If you're going to take the time to do it correctly, I mean, literally spend some time on Canva, look at templates, create something with your logo, spend the extra couple of dollars to have it printed on better paper stock and better gloss because we're very sensitive to evaluating quality based on touch. Even if you don't realize it, when you hold this in your hand and feel it, it's leaving you the impression of, is this quality or is this not? And that will be associated with you as well. I want to add a caveat here in my my take. Um, so first of all, I think that what's going to be more important than a business card or a flyer is your the impression that you leave on that prospect and how you make them feel and how you really handle the interaction. And the majority of our prospecting is done on the phone, in which case a printed out flyer and a business card don't really do you any good. I will say, if you're doing anything in person, 100% business card. I'm all about it. Um, I have been in a situation when I switched companies and the first time I was at an in-person event, everyone's exchanging business cards. I didn't have one. So like I had to go order them for the next time that that happened. It's kind of embarrassing, but um, all good. The um, the flyers thing, I have done that, but I only ever would use them if there was an in-person customer visit. Like we did some local stuff at a company I was at before and we went in and we had a folder with a bunch of nice stuff, right? It highlighted our all of our services, a little bit about the company. Um, I don't think you need it, but I think if you're going to do it, you're right. The presentation matters. And the other thing too is don't stop yourself from prospecting because you don't have the right flyer or business card ready yet, right? It should never slow you down. But if you're going to go that route, I agree. Keep it simple though. I, I don't, I can't tell you of anyone that's ever closed a customer because they had a nice flyer. Correct. Again, I think this is the farthest from your top priority. Everything Nate said, like, this is definitely kind of an afterthought. 
But if you got some extra time on the weekend, and if you've got a choice to do whether you're going to do this during the week or make phone calls, make phone calls. Do not design yeah. flyers. It's a far better use of your time. But, but if it's you're like, going to spend time. Yeah, it's like a website, though, where like if if you have one, it better be of quality. Right. Don't yes. have it like you're you're probably better off not having a flyer than having a bad flyer. And it looks like you have a fly flying around your it's driving me nuts. Yeah. And it's like the <laughs> tiniest fruit fly that just keeps hovering right around my line of sight. It reminds me of the episode from Breaking Bad, if you ever watched that, where there's like a fly buzzing around their uh, their lab. But yes. Anyway, good discussion. Um, next question from Deveris. He asked, if I get my own truck and my own authority, will brokers realistically work with me? Um, he did go, I, I shortened the question. He went on to say, basically, you know, being so new, is it going to be hard to get a, uh, a broker to work with you as a new carrier? It's harder, but there, there is always a way it's the same way as if you're a new broker and you're trying to get a carrier to work with you. Right. And we had, I think absolutely great discussion we've had with multiple people, right? We had Des Clark on earlier this year. We had Pardeep sing on um, just a couple weeks ago, talking about the challenges of being new in the industry and having to build up a reputation, whether it's, whether it's a credit reputation or a personal um, here's me and my company reputation. So to answer his question about being a new carrier, there are likely either shippers or brokers that you worked with as a company driver that you can then leverage those relationships when you're brand new. Right. Like, hey, I know I was working with, you know, ABC trucking before as a company driver. I got my own truck and authority now as an owner operator. I'd like to continue doing business with you. It's going to show I have a brand new authority and no history. But those are the relationships I'm going to try to leverage first. The ones that I already have some kind of a history with. Um, and the same thing goes if you're a brand new broker, right? Maybe you are a W-2 and you want to go off and start your own brokerage. That's a goal of yours. Um, you have customers and carriers that you have worked with for years, likely, if you're going to be going off on your own. Leverage those first. As you go through your first few months and you don't have a credit history yet. So when a factoring company or, or carrier look at you, they're going to say, who? who? They have no history at all. Um, you know, Look at those folks that can give you a either a good review or um, act as a reference for somebody new. That, that's my thing is it's a relationship business. And just because... Just because you're brand new on your authority does not mean that you, by default you're not experienced because you you very likely could be. And his question alludes that he's been doing it for uh, quite a while. What do you think? Same thing. A conversation goes a long way. I mean, starting anything is going to be more difficult than if you've already been in it and have an existing business. But that being said, it's usually worth it. I'd say the other piece of advice is have the proper expectations and the time horizons. If you're doing this just because you're trying to get better rates right now in the short term and you don't really care what happens in the long term, this is probably not the best move for you. But if you truly want to own your own company and you want to run your own business and you want to do this for the right reasons over the long term, then you can make it work. It will take more effort up front, but there will be payoff for that work is what I would say. Yep. Absolutely. All right. Uh, on to our next question. Um, after driving for 10 years, I'm considering the broker side of things. What are the pros and cons and what advice would you give? So what's funny is I, 
I talk to people very often in my regular brokerage work where they, they come to me at Pierce Worldwide Logistics and they say, hey, you know, I'd like to become a freight agent for your company, but they don't have any brokerage experience. They've got just driving experience or dispatching for a trucking company. And they'll, you know, I'll tell them like, you know, it's probably not a good fit. We don't, we don't train anybody new. And, you know, obviously always toss them some training ideas and throw them our stuff and our content. Um, but a lot of times I'll get someone who's like really confident and they're like, Hey, you know, I'm going to go out there. I'm going to hustle. It can't be that hard. I'm just gonna go out there and call a bunch of people and get, you know, get customers. And I actually talked to a guy today, like an hour ago, had a very similar conversation and he's like, it's not that hard. And I, I was like, I, I don't know what your experience has been in the market right now, but it is very, very difficult to go out there and get a new customer right now. It's not impossible, but it's very difficult. So if you've never brokered before, it's even that much harder because you've never had to close a customer or or prospect a shipper, let alone we're in a, a freight market now where it is a lot of companies are they're evaluating their transportation partners. They're they're they might say we're not adding anybody new right now unless there's some kind of exception. They're trying to downsize their broker and carrier network to try and weed out bad uh, the not not want to say bad players, but the 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 less performing uh, folks out there. Now, not to be a Debbie Downer, but I just want to at least point that part out that brokering is different than driving. Now, um, the pros you have first-hand experience of what it's like to be behind the wheel. You know what's important to drivers. You know where they want to and don't want to pick up and deliver. You know the things that frustrate them, the things that are important to them. Um, you, you just have that other side of the equation that a lot of brokers don't ever have. They never drove. They never had to deal with the the you know mechanics, mechanical issues that go on. And, um, you know, they're having to deal with their driver and you know, how many hours they can drive per day before they have to reset all the little stuff that you wouldn't think about. Uh, you now have that firsthand experience and you can go into a conversation with a carrier understanding from their perspective because you've done it before. So that's your benefit. Um, I'm trying to think. Yeah. I mean, it's a very, so the big difference brokerage and driving is like we're brokering is the sales side of it. In my opinion, it is the huge, it is less obviously physically demanding, but very um, personality wise and emotionally demanding as far as having to put yourself out there for a whole bunch of sales calls and prospecting calls. What do you think, man? I mean, I agree with everything you said. The thing I would say to to anybody considering this, and this is the advice I give when I get, I get this question a lot um, for a course or people refer to us from DAT. This is probably the number one question that gets asked when we get called. And I'll usually say, you know, I'll outline what you just said, you know, the differences in really performing the job, right? There are, it is a very different job. One is a, a mentally and emotionally taxing. The other one is more physically. And I would say also probably mentally taxing, like driving a truck is all three of those, right? Yeah. But it's very different types of work, right? And I would also say that like, the personality types that tend to thrive, not the only ones, and there's exceptions to everything. And I've seen every personality type be successful in freight brokerage. But the thing I would say is the biggest drawback or the reason people don't stay with it is the sales calls, right? Like putting yourself in a position to be rejected on the phone 
over and over and over and over consistently day in and day out, week after week, month after month, quarter after quarter to get anything. If you're going to start, it will probably take you a few quarters before you're getting real customers in this market. And again, I think you got an advantage. You would probably call the customers you've already shipped for or worked with in the decade you've been there. You've got a high likelihood there. But as soon as you get through all of those, you're going to make at the very least, if you want to be successful, 30, 40 calls a day of which you're going to get hung up on, not find anybody. People are going to say they're going to talk to you. Then you'll call them and they won't be there. I mean, my favorite analogy to also drive this home is surfing, right? I heard somebody say this. They were like, surfing really shouldn't be called surfing. It should be called paddling because you spend 90% of your time paddling and only a few moments actually riding away. And it really <laughs> had me point. thinking... It had me thinking about sales because like we call it sales, but the vast majority of the time you're not selling shit. You're getting rejected, yelled at, hung up on, avoided. And that takes an emotional toll. And if you're the kind of person that takes those things personally, and again, I've done this tens of thousands of times in my life, it still weighs down on me from time to time. And like you got to build up a muscle to it to realize that like they're not rejecting you as a person they're rejecting the situation but it's really hard to to gauge that and to kind of navigate it when this becomes your job like waking yeah. up every day and going to bed knowing you're going to get on the phone all day and do this tomorrow is the reason why most people don't see it through so the advice i would give is after all that being said is if you're still driving Do this for a couple hours a day if you can in between things when you're on your downtime. See if you can really make these calls day in and day out for a couple weeks. Pick random shippers that are in the same category of places you've shipped for so you understand what they need and then see what you get from this. See how you feel making those phone calls. And I think that's a really good litmus test to see if you want to make the jump to changing your career, which is a pretty big one. I would add this into, and this kind of, this is a a very universal concept in life. If you're thinking about doing something new is talk to somebody and spend some time with someone who's, who's doing it, who's gone through what you've done. Right. And ask him what they thought. And it could be, um, someone that succeeded, someone that failed, maybe talk to a bunch of them and try to take, you know, the pointers out of it. The other thing people don't think about too, is it's outside of the sales aspect is there are other things that you may not have been exposed to as a driver that you now would be as a freight broker business owner, which is what do you do when a customer is debating a charge or they're slow paying? Now you become a collections agent and a conflict resolution person. Um, so, I mean, there's just, there's a, because you're the bank now, there, there's a lot that goes into it that um, we just want to make sure you know what to expect before you just hop into that new venture. So, yeah. So again, I mean, we've got now hundreds of hours of content on videos on these things that anybody out there can watch through the YouTube channel, through our website. And again, I think if you've done this, made some calls and you feel like this is something you want to take the next step on, our course Freight Broker Basics is another great avenue to really get a at down in the weeds level understanding of what you'll be doing all day, what's required, how to actually sell, close shippers, move freight. And it's a very different business than shipping, than trucking. I'm sorry. Like if you own an asset company, a freight brokerage is a different business model. They are not the same. And again, I hear lots of different things in overlap. Well, like a dispatcher and I, you do understand it, but you understand one side of it. 
Truck driving and driving a truck and operating a trucking company are different jobs. Running a freight brokerage is a different job. And running a distribution department or a logistics department at a shipper is a different job. They all seem like they're close enough that you could just do all of them. But the reality is, is they have very different risks, very different things you're doing all day. And some are a fit for some and some aren't a fit for others, just based on personalities and just what you enjoy doing day to day. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Final question from Lily. She asked, have you ever filed a claim and only got a prorated portion? So basically a partial payout. Uh, Yes. And there's actually, there's two ways this can happen. Number, I'm going to, so, and what I mean is it can happen to a broker or a carrier. I'm going to start with the carrier side because um, I'm not sure which one she was going with, but there, a carrier would file a claim on a broker's bond if they, if they did not receive payment, right? That's one version. The other would be the broker filing a claim on behalf of their customer on the carrier's insurance and it being either partially paid or denied, whatever. So I'll talk, the first one being the bond. Um, so if, if a carrier hauls a load for a broker and doesn't get paid, files on their bond, uh, which is why it's there because they went out of business or whatever the case might be, they might get a partial payment if they were late to the game and the bond dried up, right? Maybe there's only $1,000 left on that bond and they get the last thousand bucks. So that is that is one. And I don't know if this is where she, how she was asking it, but that would be one scenario. Now, Another situation would be the, you know, the probably the more common is us as brokers, when we facilitate a claim for our customer and we're going to file it on the carrier's insurance, the carrier's insurance could deny the claim altogether. Um, the carrier's insurance could pay out less than what you're trying to claim. It all depends on a whole bunch of factors. It's like if you get in a car accident and your car's totaled. And the insurance company says, well, there's more, it's more expensive to replace, or it'd be more expensive to fix your car. So instead of paying all that, we're just going to total it and give you a check for what your car was worth. Uh, It could be that they're claiming a bunch of lettuce was spoiled because of the, um, you know, the reefer temperature was set wrong. And then you find out, well, the customer actually, put some bad product on there. That's the reason some of it was spoiled and the rest was due to the carrier's negligence. It could be a partial payout claim. Have you ever had any partial stuff like that? I mean, claims are just a big dispute process. They are. And and remember like the motivations of the insurance company is to lower, even if they can a percentage or two in every claim, because that's their job, right? It's to do what they say they were going to do and to obviously pay when necessary or required, but they are looking for every way to mitigate that or reduce it, right? Or to shift liability, maybe to the brokerage in some way for them to pay a portion of the claim. And it reminds me of like an example, and this is on the auto side, and this was just something that happened to me, but it reminds me of this story. I was probably like 17 years old, and I pulled into a gas station in front of like the actual store where you walk in, right? And as I'm in the gas station grabbing like an iced tea or something, somebody else backs right into the side of my car, right? So like clearly I'm not even in it, not driving it, and they literally like back up right into my car, dent it. We exchange information and I'll never forget because I got a phone call from like the insurance company like a week or so or whatever it was recently after. And I remember because like I was home alone and I was still a teenager, right? But I answered the call because they called me and I was still under my parents' insurance. But they were like, 
Well, I noticed that like your car was parked a little bit outside of the lines in front of the quickie mart or whatever. So you would agree that you're probably a little responsible for the fact that this guy ran into you. And again, I was like 17. I was like, so wait a minute. Me not even being in my vehicle, I'm somehow responsible for this guy not looking at where he was backing up and ran into me. You want to say that it's a portion of my fault? I was like, I'm pretty new to all this stuff. I was like, but I'm going to go on a limb and say, like, I am accepting absolutely no responsibility for this. And we'll see where it goes from here. And again, I ended up talking to my agent. He's like, oh, yeah, they do that all the time. They're going to call you and see if they can get you to move any responsibility to anybody whenever they can. And it's like the same thing happens in business and in carriers. And to your point, right? And oftentimes there isn't a clear line of who is responsible for which portion or all of the claim. And it should be shared in some of these things, right? Can you give me, I I got a question for you too, Nate, on this. Like how often do you see a brokerage's insurance policy come in and pick up the difference when a carrier pays the portion back to the shipper? Um, In over 40 years of our brokerage, the contingent cargo policy has paid out a claim one time. Now we have, there's been many times when a carrier's insurance denies a claim or does not pay out the full amount that we're trying to get. And to do the right thing for our customer, we will then absorb or eat out of our own pocket, the cost of that. And that's more, that that happens more often than a contingent policy paying out. Yeah. And again, that was more of my personal experience. And again, when I worked in larger brokerages, I heard far more stories of us doing that to keep the account in good standing. Basically like, look, you know, this is what this account's worth to this company. It's worth us to cut the check for the five, the 10. And sometimes, I mean, I've heard of instances of like six figure checks being cut um, in order to keep customers and to make things what we've considered fair or right. Yeah. So Yep. Claims are not fun, but they do happen. It's it's a it's part of doing business um, as you grow and, you know, sort of unavoidable if you get to a certain volume of business. But anyway, great questions. Don't forget to subscribe, share us with all your friends and check out all of our other content. And um, we'll see you guys on the next one. Ben, any final thoughts? Whether you believe you can or believe you can't, you're right. And until next time, go Bills.